Chapter Thirty One of the Middle Temple Murder by J. S. Fletcher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirty One The Penitent Window Cleaner. That afternoon, Spargo had another of his momentous interviews with his proprietor and his editor. The first result was that all three drove to the offices of the legal gentleman who catered for the watchman when it wanted any law and that things were put in shape for an immediate application to the home office for permission to open the chamberlain grave at market milcaster the second was that on the following morning there appeared in the watchman a notice which set half the mouths of london a-watering that notice penned by spargo ran as follows one thousand pounds reward whereas on some date within the past twelve months there was stolen abstracted or taken from the chambers in fountain court temple occupied by mr stephen aylmore m p under the name of mr anderson a walking-stick or stout staff of foreign make and of curious workmanship which stick was probably used in the murder of john marbury or maitland in middle temple lane on the night of june twenty first to twenty second last and is now in the hands of the police this is to give notice that the proprietor of the watchman newspaper will pay the above-mentioned reward one thousand pounds sterling at once and in cash to whosoever will provide that he or she stole abstracted or took away the said stick from the said chambers and will further give full information as to his or her disposal of the same and the proprietor of the watchman moreover engages to treat any revelation affecting the said stick in the most strictly private and confidential manner and to abstain from using it in any way detrimental to the informant who should call at the watchman office and ask for mr frank spargo at any time between eleven and one o'clock midday and seven and eleven o'clock in the evening and you really expect to get some information through that asked breton who came into spargo's room about noon on the day on which the promising announcement came out you really do before day is out said spargo confidently there is more magic in a thousand pound reward than you fancy breton i'll have the history of that stick before midnight how are you to tell that you won't be imposed upon suggested breton anybody can say that he or she stole the stick whoever comes here with any tale of a stick will have to prove to me how he or she got the stick and what was done with the stick said spargo i haven't the least doubt that that stick was stolen or taken away from aylmore's rooms in fountain court and that it got into the hands of yes of whom that's what i want to know in some fashion i've an idea already but i can afford to wait for definite information i know one thing when i get that information as i shall we shall be a long way on the road towards establishing aylmore's innocence breton made no remark upon this he was looking at spargo with a meditative expression spargo he said suddenly do you think you'll get that order for the opening of the grave at market milcaster i was talking to the solicitors over the phone just now answered spargo they've every confidence about it in fact it's possible it may be made this afternoon in that case the opening will be made early tomorrow morning shall you go asked breton certainly 
and you can go with me if you like better keep in touch with us all day in case we hear you ought to be there you're concerned i should like to go i will go said breton and if that grave proves to be empty i'll i'll tell you something spargo looked up with sharp instinct you'll tell me something something what never mind wait until we see if that coffin contains a dead body or lead and sawdust if there's no body there at that moment one of the senior messenger boys came in and approached spargo his countenance usually subdued to an official stolidity showed signs of something very like excitement there's a man downstairs asking for you mr spargo he said he's been hanging about a bit sir seems very shy about coming up he won't say what he wants and he won't fill up a form sir says all he wants is a word or two with you bring him up at once commanded spargo he turned to breton when the boy had gone there he said laughing this is the man about the stick you see if it isn't you're such a cocksure chap spargo said breton you're always going on a straight line trying to you mean retorted spargo well stop here and hear what this chap has to say it'll no doubt be amusing the messenger boy deeply conscious that he was ushering into spargo's room an individual who might shortly carry away a thousand pounds of good watchman money in his pocket opened the door and introduced a shy and self-conscious young man whose nervousness was painfully apparent to everybody and deeply felt by himself he halted on the threshold looking round the comfortably furnished room and at the two well-dressed young men which it framed as if he feared to enter on a scene of such grandeur come in come in said spargo rising and pointing to an easy chair at the side of his desk take a seat you've called about that reward of course the man in the chair eyed the two of them cautiously and not without suspicion he cleared his throat with a palpable effort of course he said it's all on the strict private name of edward mollison sir and where do you live and what do you do said spargo you might put it down Roughton house whitechapel answered edward mollison leastways that's where i generally hang out when i can afford it and window cleaner leastways i was window cleaning when 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 you came in contact with the stick we've been advertising about suggested spargo just so well mollison what about the stick mollison looked round at the door and then at the windows and then at breton there ain't no danger of me being got into trouble along o that stick he asked cause if there is i ain't a-going to say a word no not for no thousand pounds me never having been in no trouble of any sort governor though a poor man not the slightest danger in the world mollison replied spargo not the least all you've got to do is to tell the truth and prove that it is the truth so it was you who took that queer-looking stick out of mr aylmore's rooms in fountain court was it mollison appeared to find this direct question soothing to his feelings he smiled weakly it was certainly me as took it sir he said not that i meant to pinch it not me and as you might say i didn't take it when all said and done it was put on me put on you was it said spargo 
that's interesting and how was it put on you mollison grinned again and rubbed his chin it was this here way he answered you see i was working at that time near on to nine months since it is for the universal daylight window cleaning company and i used to clean a many windows here and there in the temple and then windows at mr aylmore's only i knew them as mr anderson's among em and i was there one morning early it was when the charwoman she says to me i wish you'd take these two or three arthrugs she says and give em a good beating she says and me being always a ready one to oblige all right i says and takes em here's something to wallop em with she says and pulls that their old stick out of a lot that was in a stand in a corner of the lobby and that's how i came to handle it sir i see said spargo a good explanation and when you had beaten the hearthrugs what then mollison smiled his weak smile again well sir i looked at that there stick and i see it was something uncommon he said and i thinks well this mr anderson he's got a bundle of sticks and walking canes up there he'll never miss this old thing i thinks and so i left it in a corner when i'd done beating the rugs and when i went away with my things i took it with me you took it with you said spargo just so to keep as a curiosity i suppose mollison's weak smile turned to one of cunning he was obviously losing his nervousness the sound of his own voice and the reception of his news was imparting confidence to him not half he answered you see governor there was an old cove as i knew in the temple there as is or was cause i ain't been there since a collector of antiquities like and i'd sold him a queer old thing time and again and of course i had him in my eye when i took the stick away see i see and you took the stick to him i took it there and then replied mollison pitched him a tale i did about it having been brought from foreign parts by uncle simon which i never had no uncle simon made out it was a rare curiosity which it might have been one for all i know exactly and the old cove took a fancy to it eh bought it there and then answered mollison with something very like a wink ah bought it there and then and how much did he give you for it asked spargo something handsome i hope couple of quid replied mollison me not wishing to part with a family heirloom for less just so and you happen to be able to tell me the old cove's name and his address mollison asked spargo i do sir which they've painted on his entry the fifth or sixth as you go down middle temple lane answered mollison mr nicholas cardlestone first floor up the staircase spargo rose from his seat without as much as a look at breton come this way mollison he said we'll go and see about your little reward excuse me breton breton kicked his heels in solitude for half an hour then spargo came back there that's one matter settled breton he said now for the next the home secretary's made the order for the opening of the grave at market millcaster i'm going down there at once and i suppose you're coming and remember if that grave's empty if that grave's empty said breton i'll tell you a good deal End of chapter thirty one
Chapter Thirty Two of the Middle Temple Murder by J. S. Fletcher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirty Two. The Contents of the Coffin. They travelled down together to Market Milcaster late that afternoon. Spargo, Breton, the officials from the Home Office entrusted with the order for the opening of the Chamberlain grave, and a solicitor acting on behalf of the proprietor of the watchman it was late in the evening when they reached the little town but spargo having looked in at the parlour of the yellow dragon and ascertained that mr quarterpage had only just gone home took breton across the street to the old gentleman's house mr quarterpage himself came to the door and recognised spargo immediately nothing would satisfy him but that the two should go in his family he said had just retired but he himself was going to take a final nightcap and a cigar and they must share it for a few minutes only then mr quarterpage said spargo as they followed the old man into his dining-room we have to be up at daybreak and possibly you too would like to be up just as early mr quarterpage looked an inquiry over the top of a decanter which he was handling at daybreak he exclaimed the fact is said spargo that grave of chamberlain's is going to be opened at daybreak we have managed to get an order from the home secretary for the exhumation of chamberlain's body the officials in charge of it have come down in the same train with us we're all staying across there at the dragon the officials have gone to make the proper arrangements with your authorities it will be at daybreak or as near as it can conveniently be managed and i suppose now that you know of it you'll be there god bless me exclaimed mr quarterpage you've really done that well well so we shall know the truth at last after all these years you're a very wonderful young man mr spargo upon my word and this other young gentleman spargo looked at breton who had already given him permission to speak mr quarterpage he said this young gentleman is without doubt john maitland's son he's the young barrister mr ronald breton that i told you of but there's no doubt about his parentage and i'm sure you'll shake hands with him and wish him well mr quarterpage set down decanter and glass and hastened to give breton his hand my dear young sir he exclaimed that i will indeed and as to wishing you well i never wished anything but well to your poor father he was led away sir led away by chamberlain god bless me what a night of surprises why mr spargo supposing that coffin is found empty what then then answered spargo then i think we shall be able to put our hands on the man who is supposed to be in it you think my father was worked upon by this man chamberlain sir observed breton a few minutes later when they had all sat down round mr quarterpage's hospitable hearth you think he was unduly influenced by him mr quarterpage shook his head sadly chamberlain my dear young sir he answered chamberlain was a plausible and a clever fellow nobody knew anything about him until he came to this town and yet before he had been here very long he had contrived to ingratiate himself with everybody of course to his own advantage i firmly believe that he twisted your father round his little finger 
as I told Mr. Spargo there when he was making his inquiries of me a short while back, it would never have been any surprise to me to hear, definitely I mean, young gentleman, that all this money that was in question went into Chamberlain's pockets. Dear me, dear me, and you really believe that Chamberlain is actually alive, Mr. Spargo? Spargo pulled out his watch. We shall know whether he was buried in that grave before another six hours are over, Mr. Quarterpage, he said. He might well have spoken of four hours instead of six, for it was then nearly midnight, and before three o'clock Spargo and Breton, with the other men who had accompanied them from London, were out of the Yellow Dragon and on their way to the cemetery just outside the little town. Over the hills to the eastward the grey dawn was slowly breaking. The long stretch of marshland which lies between Market Milcaster and the sea was white with fog. On the cypresses and acacias of the cemetery hung veils and webs of gossamer. Everything around them was quiet as the dead folk who lay beneath their feet, and the people actively concerned went quietly to work, and those who could do nothing but watch stood around in silence. "'In all my long life of over ninety years,' whispered old Quarterpage, who had met them at the cemetery gates, looking fresh and brisk in spite of his shortened rest, "'I have never seen this done before. It seems a strange, strange thing to interfere with a dead man's last resting-place. A dreadful thing.' "'If there's a dead man there,' said Spargo. He himself was mainly curious about the details of this exhumation. He had no scruples, sentimental or otherwise, about the breaking in upon the dead. He watched all that was done. The men employed by the local authorities instructed overnight had fenced in the grave with canvas. The proceedings were accordingly conducted in strict privacy. A man was posted to keep away any very early passer-by who might be attracted by the unusual proceedings. At first there was nothing to do but wait, and Spargo occupied himself by reflecting that every spadeful of earth thrown out of that grave was bringing him nearer to the truth. He had an unconquerable intuition that the truth of, at any rate, one phase of the Marbury case was going to be revealed to them. If the coffin to which they were digging down contained a body, and that the body of the stockbroker Chamberlain, then a good deal of his, Spargo's, latest theory, would be dissolved to nothingness. But if that coffin contained nobody at all, then— "'They're down to it,' whispered Breton. Presently they all went and looked down into the grave. The workmen had uncovered the coffin preparatory to lifting it to the surface. One of them was brushing the earth away from the nameplate, and in the now strong light they could read the lettering on it. James Cartwright Chamberlain, born 1852, died 1891. Spargo turned away as the men began to lift the coffin out of the grave. We shall know now, he whispered to Breton. And yet, what is it we shall know if... If what? said Breton. If what? But Spargo shook his head. This was one of the great moments he had lately been working for, and the issues were tremendous. "'Now for it,' said the watchman's solicitor in an undertone. "'Come, Mr. Spargo, now we shall see.' They all gathered round the coffin, set on low trestles at the graveside, as the workmen silently went to work on the screws. 
the screws were rusted in their sockets they grated as the men slowly worked them out it seemed to spargo that each man grew slower and slower in his movements he felt that he himself was getting fidgety then he heard a voice of authority lift the lid off a man at the head of the coffin a man at the foot suddenly and swiftly raised the lid the men gathered round craned their necks with a quick movement sawdust the coffin was packed to the brim with sawdust tightly pressed down the surface lay smooth undisturbed levelled as some hand had levelled it long years before they were not in the presence of death but of deceit somebody laughed faintly the sound of laughter broke the spell the chief official present looked round him with a smile it is evident that there were good grounds for suspicion he remarked here is no dead body gentlemen see if anything lies beneath the sawdust he added turning to the workman turn it out the workmen began to scoop out the sawdust with their hands one of them evidently desirous of making sure that no body was in the coffin thrust down his fingers at various places along its length he too laughed the coffin's weighted with lead he remarked see and tearing the sawdust aside he showed those around him that at three intervals bars of lead had been tightly wedged into the coffin where the head the middle and the feet of a corpse would have rested done it cleverly he remarked looking round you see how these weights have been adjusted when a body's laid out in a coffin you know all the weights in the end where the head and trunk rest here you see the heaviest bar of lead is in the middle the lightest at the feet clever clear out all the sawdust said someone let's see if there's anything else inside there was something else at the bottom of the coffin two bundles of papers tied up with pink tape the legal gentleman present immediately manifested great interest in these so did spargo who pulling breton along with him forced his way to where the officials from the home office and the solicitor sent by the watchman were hastily examining their discoveries the first bundle of papers opened evidently related to transactions at market milcaster spargo caught glimpses of names that were familiar to him mr quarterpages amongst them he was not at all astonished to see these things but he was something more than astonished when on the second parcel being opened a quantity of papers relating to cloudhampton and the hearth and home mutual benefit society were revealed he gave a hasty glance at these and drew breton aside it strikes me we found a good deal more than we ever bargained for he exclaimed didn't aylmore say that the real culprit at cloudhampton was another man his clerk or something of that sort he did agreed breton he insists on it then this fellow chamberlain must have been the man said spargo he came to market milcaster from the north what'll be done with those papers he asked turning to the officials we are going to seal them up at once and take them to london replied the principal person in authority they'll be quite safe mr spargo have no fear we don't know what they may reveal you don't indeed said spargo but i may as well tell you that i have a strong belief that they'll reveal a good deal that nobody dreams of so take the greatest care of them then without waiting for further talk with any one spargo hurried breton out of the cemetery 
at the gate he seized him by the arm now then breton he commanded out with it with what you promised to tell me something a great deal you said if we found that coffin empty it is empty come on quick all right i believe i know where elphick and cardlestone can be found that's all all it's enough where then in heaven's name elphick has a queer little place where he and cardlestone sometimes go fishing right away up in one of the wildest parts of the yorkshire moors i expect they've gone there nobody knows even their names there they could go and lie quiet there for ages do you know the way to it i do i've been there spargo motioned him to hurry come on then he said we're going there by the very first train out of this i know the train too we've just time to snatch a mouthful of breakfast and to send a wire to the watchman and then we'll be off yorkshire gad breton that's over three hundred miles away End of chapter thirty two Chapter thirty three of the Middle Temple Murder by J. S. Fletcher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirty three Forestalled. Travelling all that long summer day, first from the southwest of England to the Midlands, then from the Midlands to the north, Spargo and Breton came late at night to Hawes Junction, on the border of Yorkshire and Westmoreland and saw rising all around them in the half-darkness the mighty bulks of the great fells which rise amongst that wild and lonely stretch of land at that hour of the night and amidst that weird silence broken only by the murmur of some adjacent waterfall the scene was impressive and suggestive it seemed to spargo as if london were a million miles away and the rush and bustle of human life a thing of another planet here and there in the valleys he saw a light, but such lights were few and far between. Even as he looked, some of them twinkled and went out. It was evident that he and Breton were presently to be alone with the night. "'How far?' he asked Breton, as they walked away from the station. "'We'd better discuss matters,' answered Breton. The place is in a narrow valley called Fossdale, some six or seven miles away across these fells, and as wild a walk as any lover of such things could wish for. It's half-past nine now, Spargo. I reckon it will take us a good two and a half hours, if not more, to do it. Now the question is, do we go straight there, or do we put up for the night? There's an inn here at this junction. There's a moorcock in a mile or so along the road which we must take before the turn-off to the moorland and the fells. It's going to be a black night. Look at those masses of black cloud gathering there. And possibly a wet one, and we've no waterproofs. But it's for you to say. I'm game for whatever you like. Do you know the way? asked Spargo. I've been the way. In the daytime I could go straight ahead. I remember all the landmarks. Even in the darkness I believe I can find my way. But it's rough walking. We'll go straight there, said Spargo. Every minute's precious. But can we get a mouthful of bread and cheese and a glass of ale first? Good idea. We'll call in at the Moorcock. Now then, 
while we're on this firm road step it out lively the moorcock was almost deserted at that hour there was scarcely a soul in it when the two travellers turned into its dimly lighted parlour the landlord bringing the desired refreshment looked hard at breton come our way again then sir he remarked with a sudden grin of recognition ah you remember me said breton i call in mind when you came here with the two old gents last year replied the landlord i hear they're here again tom summers was coming across that way this morning and said he'd seen them up at the little cottage going to join em i reckon sir breton kicked spargo under the table yes we're going to have a day or two with them he answered just to get a breath of your moorland air well you'll have a roughish walk over there to-night gentlemen said the landlord there's going to be a storm and it's a stiffish way to make out at this time o night oh we'll manage said breton nonchalantly i know the way and we're not afraid of a wet skin the landlord laughed and sitting down on his long settle folded his arms and scratched his elbows there was a gentleman london gentleman by his tongue came in here this afternoon and asked the way to fossdale he observed he'll be there long since he'd have daylight for his walk happen he's one of your party he asked where the old gentleman's little cottage was again spargo felt his shin kicked and made no sign one of their friends perhaps answered breton what was he like the landlord ruminated he was not good at description and was conscious of the fact well a darkish serious-faced gentleman he said stranger hereabouts at all events wore a grey suit something like your friends here yes he took some bread and cheese with him when he heard what a long way it was wise man remarked breton he hastily finished his own bread and cheese and drank off the rest of his pint of ale come on he said let's be stepping outside in the almost tangible darkness breton clutched spargo's arm who's the man he said can you think spargo can't answered spargo i was trying to while that chap was talking but it's somebody that's got in before us not rathbury anyhow he's not serious-faced heavens breton however are you going to find your way in this darkness you'll see presently we'll follow the road a little then we'll turn up the fell side there on the top if the night clears a bit we ought to see great shanna fell and lovely seat they're both well over two thousand feet and they stand up well we want to make for a point clear between them but i warn you spargo it's stiff going go ahead said spargo it's the first time in my life i ever did anything of this sort but we're going on if it takes us all night i couldn't sleep in any bed now that i've heard there's somebody ahead of us go first old chap and i'll follow breton went steadily forward along the road that was easy work but when he turned off and began to thread his way up the fell side by what was obviously no more than a sheep track spargo's troubles began it seemed to him that he was walking as in a nightmare all he saw was magnified and heightened the darkening sky above the faint outlines of the towering hills the gaunt spectres of fir and pine the figure of breton forging stolidly and surely ahead now the ground was soft and spongy under his feet now it was stony and rugged 
more than once he caught an ankle in the wire-like heather and tripped bruising his knees and in the end he resigned himself to keeping his eye on breton outlined against the sky and following doggedly in his footsteps was there no other way than this he asked after a long interval of silence do you mean to say those two elphick and cardlestone would take this way there is another way down the valley by thwaite bridge and hardraw answered breton but it's miles and miles round this is a straight cut across country and in daylight it's a delightful walk but at night gad here's the rain spargo the rain came down as it does in that part of the world with a suddenness that was as fierce as it was heavy the whole of the grey night was blotted out spargo was only conscious that he stood in a vast solitude and was being gradually drowned but breton whose sight was keener and who had more knowledge of the situation dragged his companion into the shelter of a group of rocks he laughed a little as they huddled closely together this is a different sort of thing to pursuing detective work in fleet street spargo he said you would come on you know i'm going on if we go through cataracts and floods answered spargo i might have been induced to stop at the moorcock overnight if we hadn't heard of that chap in front if he's after those two he's somebody who knows something what i can't make out is who he can be nor i said breton i can't think of anybody who knows of this retreat but has it ever struck you spargo that somebody beside yourself may have been investigating possible replied spargo one never knows i only wish we'd been a few hours earlier for i wanted to have the first word with those two the rain ceased as suddenly as it had come just as suddenly the heavens cleared and going forward to the top of the ridge which they were then crossing breton pointed an arm to something shining far away below them you see that he said that's a sheet of water lying between us and cotterdale we leave that on our right hand climb the fell beyond it drop down into cotterdale cross two more ranges of fell and come down into fossdale under lovely seat there's a good two hours and a half stiff pull yet spargo think you can stick it spargo set his teeth go on he said uphill down dale now up to his ankles in peaty ground now tearing his shins now bruising his knees spargo yearning for the london lights the well-paved london streets the convenient taxicab even the humble omnibus plodded forward after his guide it seemed to him that they had walked for ages and had traversed a whole continent of mountains and valley when at last breton halting on the summer of a wind-swept ridge laid one hand on his companion's shoulder and pointed downward with the other there he said there spargo looked ahead into the night far away at what seemed to him to be a considerable distance he saw the faint very faint glimmer of a light a mere spark of a light that's the cottage said breton late as it is you see they're up and here's the roughest bit of the journey it'll take me all my time to find the track across the moor spargo so step carefully after me there are bogs and holes hereabout another hour had gone by ere the two came to the cottage 
Sometimes the guiding light had vanished, blotted out by intervening rises in the ground. Always, when they saw it again, they were slowly drawing nearer to it. And now, when they were at last close to it, Spargo realised that he found himself in one of the loneliest places he had ever been capable of imagining. So lonely and desolate a spot he had certainly never seen. In the dim light he could see a narrow, crawling stream, making its way down over rocks and stones from the high ground of Great Shunner Fell. Opposite to the place at which they stood, on the edge of the moorland, a horseshoe-like formation of ground was backed by a ring of fir and pine. Beneath this protecting fringe of trees stood a small building of grey stone, which stood as if it had been originally built by some shepherd as a pen for the moorland sheep. It was of no more than one story in height, but of some length. A considerable part of it was hidden by shrubs and brushwood, and from one uncurtained, blindless window the light of a lamp shone boldly into the fading darkness without. Breton pulled up on the edge of the crawling stream. "'We've got to get across there, Spargo,' he said. "'But as we're already soaked to the knee, it doesn't matter about getting another wetting. "'Have you any idea how long we've been walking?' "'Hours. Days. Years,' replied Spargo. "'I should say quite four hours,' said Breton. "'In that case, it's well past two o'clock, and the light will be breaking in another hour or so. "'Now, once across this stream, what shall we do?' "'What have we come to do? Go to the cottage, of course.' wait a bit no need to startle them by the fact they've got a light i take it that they're up look there as he spoke a figure crossed the window passing between it and the light that's not elphick nor yet cardlestone said spargo they're medium-heighted men that's a tallish man then it's the man the landlord of the moorcock told us about said breton now look here i know every inch of this place when we're across, let me go up to the cottage, and I'll take an observation through that window, and see who's inside. Come on. He led Spargo across the stream at a place where a succession of boulders made a natural bridge, and bidding him keep quiet, went up the bank to the cottage. Spargo, watching him, saw him make his way past the shrubs and undergrowth, until he came to a great bush which stood between the lighted window and the projecting porch of the cottage. He lingered in the shadow of this bush for but a short moment, then came swiftly and noiselessly back to his companion. His hand fell on Spargo's arm with a clutch of nervous excitement. "'Spargo,' he whispered, "'who on earth do you think the other man is?' End of chapter 33《Chapter Thirty Four of the Middle Temple Murder by J. S. Fletcher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirty Four The Whip Hand Spargo, almost irritable from desire to get at close grips with the objects of his long journey, shook off Breton's hand with a growl of resentment. And how on earth can I waste time guessing? he exclaimed. Who is he? Breton laughed softly. "'Steady, Spargo, steady,' he said. "'It's Myerst, the safe deposit man. Myerst!' Spargo started as if something had bitten him, 
Myerst, he almost shouted. Myerst? Good God! Why did I never think of him? Myerst! Then... I don't know why you should have thought of him, said Breton, but he's there. Spargo took a step towards the cottage. Breton pulled him back. Wait, he said. We've got to discuss this. I'd better tell you what they're doing. What are they doing, then? demanded Spargo impatiently. Well, answered Breton, they're going through a quantity of papers. The two old gentlemen look very ill and very miserable. Myas is evidently laying down the law to them, in some fashion or other. I formed a notion, Spargo. What notion? Myas is in possession of whatever secret they have, and he's followed them down here to blackmail them. That's my notion. Spargo thought a while, pacing up and down the river bank. I dare say you're right, he said. Now, what's to be done? Breton, too, considered matters. I wish, he said at last, I wish we could get in there and overhear what's going on. But that's impossible. I know that cottage. The only thing we can do is this. We must catch Myerst unawares. He's here for no good. Look here. And reaching round to his hip pocket, Breton drew out a browning revolver and wagged it in his hand with a smile. "'That's a useful thing to have, Spargo,' he remarked. "'I slipped it into my pocket the other day, wondering why on earth I did it. "'Now it'll come in handy. For anything we know, Myest may be armed.' "'Well,' said Spargo, "'come up to the cottage. If things go out as I think they will, Myest, when he's got what he wants, will be off. Now, you shall get where I did just now, behind that bush, and I'll station myself in the doorway. You can report to me, and when Myest comes out, I'll cover him. Come on, Spargo, it's beginning to get light already. Breton cautiously led the way along the river bank, making use of such cover as the willows and alders afforded. Together, he and Spargo made their way to the front of the cottage. Arrived at the door, Breton posted himself in the porch, motioning to Spargo to creep in behind the bushes and to look through the window. And Spargo noiselessly followed his directions and, slightly parting the branches which concealed him, looked in through the uncurtained glass. The interior into which he looked was rough and comfortless in the extreme. There were the bare accessories of a moorland cottage, rough chairs and tables, plastered walls, a fishing-rod or two piled in a corner, some food set out on a side-table. At the table in the middle of the floor the three men sat. Cardlestone's face was in the shadow. Myest had his back to the window. Old Elphick, bending over the table, was laboriously writing with shaking fingers. And Spargo twisted his head round to his companion. Elphick, he said, is writing a cheque. Myest has another cheque in his hand. Be ready. When he gets that second cheque, I guess he'll be off. Breton smiled grimly and nodded. A moment later, Spargo whispered again. Look out, Breton, he's coming. Breton drew back into the angle of the porch. Spargo quitted his protecting bush and took the other angle. The door opened, and they heard Myest's voice threatening, commanding in tone. Now remember all I've said, and don't you forget, I've the whip-hand of both of you. The whip-hand! Then Myest turned and stepped out into the grey light, 
to find himself confronted by an athletic young man who held the muzzle of an ugly revolver within two inches of the bridge of his nose and in a remarkably firm and steady grip another glance showed him the figure of a second business-like looking young man at his side whose attitude showed a desire to grapple with him good morning mr myerst said breton with cold and ironic politeness we are glad to meet you so unexpectedly and i must trouble you to put up your hands quick myerst made one hurried movement of his right hand towards his hip but a sudden growl from breton made him shift it just as quickly above his head whither the left followed it breton laughed softly that's wise mr myerst he said keeping his revolver steadily pointed at his prisoner's nose discretion will certainly be the better part of your valour on this occasion spargo may i trouble you to see what mr myerst carries in his pockets go through them carefully not for paper or documents just now we can leave that matter we've plenty of time see if he's got a weapon of any sort on him spargo that's the important thing considering that spargo had never gone through the experience of searching a man before he made sharp and creditable work of seeing what the prisoner carried and he forthwith drew out and exhibited a revolver whilst myerst finding his tongue cursed them both heartily and with profusion excellent said breton laughing again sure he's got nothing else on him that's dangerous spargo all right now mr myerst right about face walk into the cottage hands up and remember there are two revolvers behind your back march myerst obeyed this peremptory order with more curses the three walked into the cottage breton kept his eye on his captive spargo gave a glance at the two old men cardlestone white and shaking was lying back in his chair elphick scarcely less alarmed had risen and was coming forward with trembling limbs wait a moment said breton soothingly don't alarm yourself we'll deal with mr myerst here first now myerst my man sit down in that chair it's the heaviest the place affords into it now spargo you see that coil of rope there tie myerst up hand and foot to that chair and tie him well all the knots to be double spargo and behind him myerst suddenly laughed you damned young bully he exclaimed if you put a rope round me you're only putting ropes round the necks of these two old villains mark that my fine fellows we'll see about that later answered breton he kept myerst covered while spargo made play with the rope don't be afraid of hurting him spargo he said tie him well and strong he won't shift that chair in a hurry spargo spliced his man to the chair in a fashion that would have done credit to a sailor he left myerst literally unable to move either hand or foot and myerst cursed him from crown to heel for his pains that'll do said breton at last he dropped his revolver into his pocket and turned to the two old men elphick averted his eyes and sank into a chair in the darkest corner of the room old cardlestone shook as with palsy and muttered words which the two young men could not catch guardian continued breton don't be frightened and don't you be frightened either mr cardlestone there's nothing to be afraid of just yet whatever there may be later on 
"'It seems to me that Mr. Spargo and I came just in time. "'Now, Guardian, what was that fellow after?' "'Old Elphick lifted his head and shook it. "'He was plainly on the verge of tears. "'As for Cardlestone, it was evident that his nerve was completely gone, "'and Breton pointed Spargo to an old corner cupboard. "'Spargo,' he said, "'I'm pretty sure you'll find whisky in there. "'Give them both a stiff dose. "'They've broken up. "'Now, Guardian,' he continued, "'when Spargo had carried out this order, "'what was he after? "'Shall I suggest it? "'Was it blackmail?' "'Cardlestone began to whimper. "'Elphick nodded his head. "'Yes, yes,' he muttered. "'Blackmail. "'That was it. "'Blackmail. "'He, he got money.' papers from us they're on him breton turned on the captive with a look of contempt i thought as much mr myerst he said spargo let's see what he has on him spargo began to search the prisoner's pockets he laid out everything on the table as he found it it was plain that myerst had contemplated some sort of flight or a long long journey there was a quantity of loose gold a number of banknotes of the more easily negotiated denominations various foreign securities realizable in paris and there was an open cheque signed by cardlestone for ten thousand pounds and another with elphick's name at the foot also open for half that amount breton examined all these matters as spargo handed them out he turned to old elphick guardian he said why have you or Mr. Cardlestone given this man these checks and securities? What hold has he on you? Old Cardlestone began to whimper afresh. Elphick turned a troubled face on his ward. He, he threatened to accuse us of the murder of Marbury, he faltered. We, we didn't see that we had a chance. What does he know of the murder of Marbury and of you in connection with it? demanded Breton. Come, tell me the truth now. "'He's been investigating, so he says,' answered Elphick. "'He lives in that house in Middle Temple Lane, you know, "'in the top floor rooms, above Cardlestone's. "'And he says he's the fullest evidence against Cardlestone, "'and against me as an accessory after the fact.' "'And it's a lie?' asked Breton. "'A lie,' answered Elphick. "'Of course it's a lie. "'But he's so clever that... that... "'that you don't know how you could prove it otherwise,' said Breton. "'Ah, and so this fellow lives over Mr. Cardlestone there, does he? "'That may account for a good many things. "'Now, we must have the police here.' "'He sat down at the table and drew the writing materials to him. "'Look here, Spargo,' he continued. "'I'm going to write a note to the superintendent of police at Hawes. "'There's a farm half a mile from here "'where I can get a man to ride down to Hawes with the note.' "'Now, if you want to send a wire to the watchman, draft it out, and he'll take it with him.' Elphick began to move in his corner. "'Must the police come?' he said. "'Must—' "'The police must come,' answered Breton firmly. "'Go ahead with your wire, Spargo, while I write this note.' Three quarters of an hour later, when Breton came back from the farm, he sat down at Elphick's side and laid his hand on the old man's. "'Now, Guardian,' he said quietly, "'you've got to tell us the truth.'" End of chapter 34
Chapter thirty five of the Middle Temple Murder by J. S. Fletcher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirty five. Myest explains. It had been apparent to Spargo from the moment of his entering the cottage that the two old men were suffering badly from shock and fright. Cardlestone still sat in his corner, shivering and trembling. He looked incapable of explaining anything. Elphick was scarcely more fitted to speak, and when Breton issued his peremptory invitation to his guardian to tell the truth, Spargo intervened. "'Far better leave them alone, Breton,' he said in a low voice. "'Don't you see the old chap's done up? They're both done up. We don't know what they've gone through with this fellow before we came, and it's certain they've had no sleep. Leave it all till later. After all, we found them, and we found him.' He jerked his thumb over his shoulder in Myers' direction, and Breton involuntarily followed the movement. He caught the prisoner's eye, and Myers laughed. "'I dare say you two young men think yourselves very clever,' he said sneeringly. "'Don't you, now?' "'We've been clever enough to catch you, anyway,' retorted Breton. "'And now we've got you, we'll keep you till the police can relieve us of you.' "'Oh,' said Myers, with another sneering laugh. "'And on what charge do you propose to hand me over to the police? "'It strikes me you'll have some difficulty in formulating one, Mr. Breton.' "'We'll see about that later,' said Breton. "'You've extorted money by menaces from these gentlemen at any rate.' "'Have I? "'How do you know they didn't entrust me with these cheques as their agent?' exclaimed Myers. "'Answer me that. "'Or rather, let them answer if they dare. "'Here, you, Cardlestone. "'You, Elphick. "'Didn't you give me these cheques as your agent? "'Speak up now, and quick!' Spargo, watching the two old men, saw them both quiver at the sound of Myers's voice. Cardlestone, indeed, began to whimper softly. "'Look here, Breton,' he said, whispering. "'This scoundrel's got some hold on these two old chaps. "'They're frightened to death of him. "'Leave them alone. "'It would be best for them if they could get some rest. "'Hold your tongue, you,' he added aloud, turning to Myers. "'When we want you to speak, we'll tell you.' But Myers laughed again. "'All very high and mighty, Mr. Spargo, of the Watchman,' he sneered. "'You're another of the cocksure lot, and you're very clever, but not clever enough. "'Now look here, supposing—' Spargo turned his back on him. He went over to old Cardlestone and felt his hands, and he turned to Breton with a look of concern. "'I say,' he exclaimed. "'He's more than frightened. He's ill. What's to be done?' "'I asked the police to bring a doctor along with them,' answered Breton. "'In the meantime, let's put him to bed. There are beds in that inner room. We'll get him to bed and give him something hot to drink. That's all I can think of for the present.' Between them they managed to get Cardlestone to his bed, and Spargo, with a happy thought, boiled water on the rusty stove and put hot bottles to his feet. When that was done, they persuaded Elphick to lie down in the inner room. Presently, both old men fell asleep, and then Breton and Spargo suddenly realised that they themselves were hungry and wet and weary. "'There ought to be food in the cupboard,' said Breton, beginning to rummage. "'They've generally had a good stock of tin things. Here we are, Spargo. These are tongues and sardines. Make some hot coffee while I open one of these tins.' 
the prisoner watched the preparations for a rough and ready breakfast with eyes that eventually began to glisten i may remind you that i'm hungry too he said as spargo set the coffee on the table and you've no right to starve me even if you've the physical ability to keep me tied up give me something to eat if you please you shan't starve said Britain carelessly he cut an ample supply of bread and meat filled a cup with coffee and placed cup and plate before myerst untie his right arm spargo he continued i think we can give him that liberty we've got his revolver anyhow for a while the three men ate and drank in silence at last myerst pushed his plate away he looked scrutinizingly at his two captors look here he said you think you know a lot about all this affair spargo but there's only one person who knows all about it that's me we're taking that for granted said spargo we guessed as much when we found you here you'll have ample opportunity for explanation you know later on i'll explain now if you care to hear said myerst with another of his cynical laughs and if i do i'll tell you the truth i know you've got an idea in your heads that isn't favourable to me but you're utterly wrong whatever you may think look here i'll make you a fair offer there are some cigars in my case there give me one and mix me a drink of that whisky a good un and i'll tell you what i know about this matter come on anything's better than sitting here doing nothing the two young men looked at each other then breton nodded let him talk if he likes he said we're not bound to believe him and we may hear something that's true give him his cigar and his drink myerst took a stiff pull at the contents of the tumbler which spargo presently set before him he laughed as he inhaled the first fumes of his cigar as it happens you'll hear nothing but the truth he observed now that things are as they are there's no reason why i shouldn't tell the truth the fact is i've nothing to fear you can't give me in charge for it so happens that i've got a power of attorney from these two old chaps inside there to act for them in regard to the money they entrusted me with it's in an inside pocket of that letter-case and if you look at it breton you'll see it's in order but i'm not even going to dare you to interfere with or destroy it you're a barrister and you'll respect the law but that's a fact and if anybody's got a case against anybody i have against you two for assault and illegal detention but i'm not a vindictive man and breton took up myerst's letter-case and examined its contents and presently he turned to spargo he's right he whispered this is quite in order he turned to myerst all the same he said addressing him we shan't release you because we believe you're concerned in the murder of john marbury we're justified in holding you on that account all right my young friend said myerst have your own stupid way but i said i'll tell you the plain truth well the plain truth is that i know no more of the absolute murder of your father than i know of what is going on in timbuktu at this moment i do not know who killed john maitland that is a fact it may have been the old man in there who's already at his own last gasp or it mayn't i tell you i don't know though like you spargo i've tried hard to find out that's the truth i do not know you expect us to believe that exclaimed breton incredulously believe it or not as you like it's the truth answered myerst now look here 
I said nobody knew as much of this affair as I know, and that's true also. And here's the truth of what I know. The old man in that room, whom you know as Nicholas Cardlestone, is, in reality, Chamberlain, the stockbroker of Market Milcaster, whose name was so freely mentioned when your father was tried there. That's another fact. How, asked Breton sternly, can you prove it? How do you know it? Because, replied Myers, with a cunning grin, I helped to carry out his mock death and burial. I was a solicitor in those days, and my name was—something else. There were three of us at it, Chamberlain's nephew, a doctor of no reputation, and myself. We carried it out very cleverly, and Chamberlain gave us five thousand pounds apiece for our trouble. It was not the first time that I had helped him and been well paid for my help. The first time was in connection with the Cloudhampton Hearth and Home Mutual Benefit Society affair. Aylmore, or Ainsworth, was as innocent as a child in that. Chamberlain was the man at the back, but unfortunately, Chamberlain didn't profit. He lost all he got by it pretty quick. That was why he transferred his abilities to Market Milcaster. "'You can prove all this, I suppose,' remarked Spargo. "'Every word, every letter. "'But about the Market Milcaster affair. "'Your father, Breton, was right in what he said about Chamberlain, "'having all the money that was got from the bank. "'He had, and he engineered that mock death and funeral "'so that he could disappear, "'and he paid us who helped him generously, as I've told you. "'The thing couldn't have been better done.' When it was done, the nephew disappeared, the doctor disappeared, Chamberlain disappeared. I had bad luck. To tell you the truth, I was struck off the rolls for a technical offence. So I changed my name and became Mr. Myerst, and eventually what I am now. And it was not until three years ago that I found Chamberlain. I found him in this way. After I became secretary to the Safe Deposit Company, I took chambers in the temple above Cardlestone's and I speedily found out who he was. Instead of going abroad, the old fox, though he was a comparatively young un then, had shaved off his beard, settled down in the temple, and given himself up to his two hobbies, collecting curiosities and stamps. There he'd lived quietly all these years, and nobody had ever recognised or suspected him. Indeed, I don't see how they could. He lived such a quiet, secluded life with his collections, his old port, and his little whims and fads. But I knew him. "'And you doubtless profited by your recognition,' suggested Breton. "'I certainly did. He was glad to pay me a nice sum every quarter to hold my tongue,' replied Myerst, "'and I was glad to take it, and, naturally, I gained a considerable knowledge of him. He had only one friend, Mr. Elphick, in there. Now I'll tell you about him.' "'Only if you're going to speak respectfully of him,' said Breton sternly. "'I've no reason to do otherwise. "'Elphick is the man who ought to have married your mother. "'When things turned out as they did, "'Elphick took you and brought you up as he has done, "'so that you should never know of your father's disgrace. "'Elphick never knew until last night that Cardlestone is Chamberlain. "'Even the biggest scoundrels have friends. "'Elphick's very fond of Cardlestone. "'He—' Spargo turned sharply on Myerst. "'You say Elphick didn't know until last night,' he exclaimed. "'Why, then, this running away? What were they running from?' 
"'With no more notion than you have, Spargo,' replied Myers. "'I'll tell you one or other of them knows something that I don't. "'Elphick, I gather, took fright from you and went to Cardlestone. "'Then they both vanished. "'It may be that Cardlestone did kill Maitland, I don't know. "'But I'll tell you what I know about the actual murder. "'For I do know a good deal about it, "'though, as I say, I don't know who killed Maitland. "'Now, first, you know all that about Maitland's having papers and valuables and gold on him. "'Very well.' i've got all that the whole lot is locked up safely and i'm willing to hand it over to you breton when we go back to town and the necessary proof is given as it will be that you're maitland's son myerst paused to see the effect of this announcement and laughed when he saw the blank astonishment which stole over his hearers faces and still more he continued i've got all the contents of that leather box which maitland deposited with me that's safely locked up too and at your disposal i took possession of that the day after the murder then for purposes of my own i went to scotland yard as spargo there is aware you see i was playing a game and it required some ingenuity a game exclaimed breton good heavens what game i never knew until i had possession of all these things that marbury was maitland of market milcaster answered myerst when i did know then i began to put things together and to pursue my own line independent of everybody i tell you i had all maitland's papers and possessions by that time except one thing that packet of australian stamps and i found out that those stamps were in the hands of cardlestone End of chapter 35。Chapter 36 of the Middle Temple Murder by J. S. Fletcher。This LibriVox recording is in the public domain。Chapter 36 。The Final Telegram。Myest paused to take a pull at his glass and to look at the two amazed listeners with a smile of conscious triumph in the hands of cardlestone he repeated now what did i argue from that why of course that maitland had been to cardlestone's rooms that night wasn't he found lying dead at the foot of cardlestone's stairs ay but who found him not the porter not the police not you mr spargo with all your cleverness the man who found maitland lying dead there that night was i in the silence that followed spargo who had been making notes of what myers said suddenly dropped his pencil and thrusting his hands in his pockets sat bolt upright with a look which breton who was watching him seriously could not make out it was the look of a man whose ideas and conceptions are being rudely upset and myers too saw it and he laughed more sneeringly than ever that's one for you spargo he said that surprises you that makes you think now what do you think if one may ask i think said spargo that you are either a consummate liar or that this mystery is bigger than before i can lie when it's necessary retorted myerst just now it isn't necessary i'm telling you the plain truth there's no reason why i shouldn't as i've said before although you two young bullies have tied me up in this fashion you can't do anything against me I've a power of attorney from those two old men in there, and that's enough to satisfy anybody as to my possession of their cheques and securities. 
i've the whip-hand of you my son in all ways and that's why i'm telling you the truth to amuse myself during this period of waiting the plain truth my sons in pursuance of which observed breton dryly i think you mentioned that you were the first person to find my father lying dead i was that is as far as i can gather i'll tell you all about it as i said i live over cardlestone that night i came home very late it was well past one o'clock there was nobody about as a matter of fact no one has residential chambers in that building but cardlestone and myself i found the body of a man lying in the entry i struck a match and immediately recognized my visitor of the afternoon john marbury now although i was so late in going home i was as sober as a man can be and i think pretty quickly at all times i thought at double extra speed just then and the first thing i did was to strip the body of every article it had on it money papers everything all these things are safely locked up they've never been tracked next day using my facilities as secretary of the safe deposit company i secured the things in that box then i found out who the dead man really was and then i deliberately set to work to throw dust in the eyes of the police and of the newspapers and particularly in the eyes of young master spargo there i had an object what asked breton what knowing all i did i firmly believed that marbury or rather maitland had been murdered by either cardlestone or elphick i put it to myself in this way and my opinion was strengthened as you spargo inserted news in your paper maitland finding himself in the vicinity of cardlestone after leaving aylmore's rooms that night turned into our building perhaps just to see where cardlestone lived he met cardlestone accidentally or he perhaps met cardlestone and elphick together they recognized each other maitland probably threatened to expose cardlestone or rather chamberlain nobody of course could know what happened but my theory was that chamberlain killed him there at any rate was the fact that maitland was found murdered at chamberlain's very threshold and in the course of a few days i proved to my own positive satisfaction by getting access to chamberlain's rooms in his absence that maitland had been there had been in those rooms for i found there in chamberlain's desk the rare australian stamps of which Crydeer told at the inquest that was proof positive fargo looked at breton they knew what Myest did not know, that the stamps of which he spoke were lying in Spargo's breast pocket, where they had lain since he had picked them up from the litter and confusion of Chamberlain's floor. "'Why?' asked Breton, after a pause. "'Why did you never accuse Cardlestone or Chamberlain of the murder?' "'I did. I have accused him a score of times, and Elphick too,' replied Myest with emphasis. "'Not at first, mind you.' I never let Chamberlain know that I ever suspected him for some time. I had my own game to play. But at last, not so many days ago, I did. I accused them both. That's how I got the whip-hand of them. They began to be afraid. By that time, Elphick had got to know all about Cardlestone's past as Chamberlain. And as I tell you, Elphick's fond of Cardlestone. It's queer, but he is. He wants to shield him. "'What did they say when you accused them?' asked Breton. "'Let's keep to that point. Never mind their feelings for one another.' "'Just so. 
but that feeling's a lot more to do with this mystery than you think my young friend said myerst what did they say you ask why they strenuously denied it cardlestone swore solemnly to me that he had no part or lot in the murder of maitland so did elphick but they know something about the murder if those two old men can't tell you definitely who struck john maitland down i'm certain they have a very clear idea in their minds as to who really did they a sudden sharp cry from the inner room interrupted myerst breton and spargo started to their feet and made for the door but before they could reach it elphick came out white and shaking he's gone he exclaimed in quavering accents my old friend's gone he's dead i was asleep i woke suddenly and looked at him he spargo forced the old man into a chair and gave him some whisky breton passed quickly into the inner room only to come back shaking his head he's dead he said he evidently died in his sleep then his secret's gone with him remarked myerst calmly and now we shall never know if he did kill john maitland or if he didn't so that's done with old elphick suddenly sat up in his chair pushing spargo fiercely away from his side he didn't kill john maitland he cried angrily attempting to shake his fist at myers whoever says he killed maitland lies he is as innocent as i am you've tortured and tormented him to his death with that charge as you're torturing me among you i tell you he'd nothing to do with john maitland's death nothing myers laughed who had then he said hold your tongue commanded breton turning angrily on him he sat down by elphick's side and laid his hand soothingly on the old man's arm guardian he said why don't you tell what you know don't be afraid of that fellow there he's safe enough tell spargo and me what you know of the matter remember nothing can hurt cardlestone or chamberlain or whoever he is or was now elphick sat for a moment shaking his head he allowed spargo to give him another drink he lifted his head and looked at the two young men with something of an appeal i'm badly shaken he said i've suffered much lately i've learnt things that i didn't know perhaps i ought to have spoken before but i was afraid for for him he was a good friend cardlestone whatever else he may have been a good friend and i don't know any more than what happened that night tell us what happened that night said breton well that night i went round as i often did to play piquet with cardlestone it was about ten o'clock about eleven jane bayliss came to cardlestone's she'd been to my rooms to find me wanted to see me particularly and she'd come on there knowing where i should be cardlestone would make her have a glass of wine and a biscuit she sat down and we all talked then about i should think a quarter to twelve a knock came at cardlestone's door his outer door was open and of course anybody outside could see lights within cardlestone went to the door we heard a man's voice inquire for him by name then the voice added that crydeer the stamp dealer had advised him to call on mr cardlestone to show him some rare australian stamps and that seeing a light under his door he had knocked cardlestone asked him in he came in that was the man we saw next day at the mortuary 
upon my honour we didn't know him either that night or next day what happened when he came in asked breton cardlestone asked him to sit down he offered and gave him a drink the man said crydear had given him cardlestone's address and that he'd been with a friend at some rooms in fountain court and as he was passing our building he just looked to make sure where cardlestone lived and as he'd noticed a light he'd made bold to knock he and cardlestone began to examine the stamps jane bayliss said good-night and she and i left cardlestone and the man together no one had recognized him said breton no one remember i only once or twice saw maitland in all my life the others certainly did not recognize him at least i never knew that they did if they did tell us said spargo joining in for the first time tell us what you and miss bayliss did at the foot of the stairs jane bayliss suddenly said she'd forgotten something in cardlestone's lobby as she was going out to fleet street and i was going down middle temple lane to turn off to my own rooms we said good night she went back upstairs and i went home and upon my soul and honour that's all i know spargo suddenly leapt to his feet he snatched at his cap a sodden and bedraggled headgear which he had thrown down when they entered the cottage that's enough he almost shouted i've got it at last breton where's the nearest telegraph office hawes straight down this valley then here's for it look after things till i'm back or when the police come join me there i shall catch the first train to town anyhow after wiring but what are you after spargo exclaimed breton stop what on earth but spargo had closed the door and was running for all he was worth down the valley three quarters of an hour later he startled a quiet and peaceful telegraphist by darting breathless and dirty into a sleepy country post office snatching a telegraph form and scribbling down a message in shaky handwriting rathbury new scotland yard london arrest jane bayliss at once for murder of john maitland coming straight to town with full evidence frank spargo then spargo dropped on the office bench and while the wondering operator set the wires ticking strove to get his breath utterly spent in his mad race across the heather and when it was got he set out again to find the station some days later spargo having seen stephen aylmore walk out of the bow street dock cleared of the charge against him and in a fair way of being cleared of the affair of twenty years before found himself in a very quiet corner of the court holding the hand of jesse aylmore who he discovered was saying things to him which he scarcely comprehended there was nobody near them and the girl spoke freely and warmly but you will come you will come to-day and be properly thanked she said you will won't you spargo allowed himself to retain possession of the hand he also took a straight look into jesse aylmore's eyes i don't want thanks he said it was all a lot of luck and if i come to-day it will be to see just you jesse aylmore looked down at the two hands i think she whispered i think that is what i really meant end of chapter thirty six end of the middle temple murder by j s fletcher
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.